0: Thursday, January 5th, 2012. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, bizarre, needless things being said about God and well, The reason why it all happens really boils down to the fact that the human heart, by nature, is an idol factory. Uh, Doesn't want to believe God, doesn't want to submit to his law, doesn't want to submit to his truth and is at war with God and wants to make up its own God, its own idols and things like that. So as a result of that problem uh the the church always needs to remain vigilant because this side of christ's return this side of the resurrection uh the church is the church militant we are not a church at rest we are the church militant and we have the the church has real enemies uh it, sin Death, the devil, our own sinful nature, these are the things that war against Christ, war against the body of Christ, war against the church, the bride of Christ. And so as a result of that, we must ever be vigilant. And that doesn't mean just sitting on the wall going, oh, look, There's the enemy right there. See, I spotted it. Oh, good, good on me! Yay! I am so clever. You know, it doesn't work that way. When you you when you are in the church and you look out and you go, ah, there's an enemy attacking. You put your armor on and get out onto the field. (laughs) Yeah, you're gonna have to. Believe it or not, uh, you Christian, you, you need to put on the armor of God. Um, get out onto the battlefield. And believe me, uh, you're going to get wounded. Just it's how it goes. You're going to bleed. You're going to get hit. It's just going to happen. And so but that's what we get to do. This side of the resurrection, this side of our death, this side of Christ's return, we are the church militant. And so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm just saying all this because I, I I think it's funny that there's a lot of Christians out there who go, oh, you know, I just really don't want to get my nails dirty. You know, <laughs> I got a new I got a new suit and I don't want to, you know, and I've got a reputation to maintain, and the last thing I want to do is become a stench with my friends and my family. You know? And <laughs> yeah, because as soon as I put on that armor stuff and I get out there and I tell people, no, that what you're believing there is false, and it's going to send you to hell they might not like me (laughs) they might get angry with me and react violently against what i'm saying they might say bad things about me yep that's exactly what they're gonna do so um i'm it's not even a maybe it's i guarantee that's what's gonna happen get out on the field you're gonna get hit you're gonna get hurt you're gonna get wounded you're gonna have people betray you it's just what goes on on the battlefield so Welcome to Christianity 101. With <laughs> Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. So I, just... <clears throat> I feel so much better now. All right, a quick update on uh, my brother, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, late yesterday, my brother did get the results of his lab work on his brain tumor. And uh, he has what they call it. It's called a, a glioma. It, it, yeah, it's it, that's a tumor that begin that grows somewhere in the brain and uh, or on um, your it's associated with the central nervous system things like that. Anyway, so he has a glioma and it turns out that it was stage two, not early stage one, but stage two, which means that uh, the next round for my brother is going to be a round of radiation therapy, chemotherapy. And, uh, and, uh, those of you who've had chemotherapy, I never have, but I've seen people who've, um, who've been through it and, uh, it just doesn't look all that fun. Um, and it isn't. So he's got, uh, chemotherapy ahead of him in order to treat the cancer. The doctors are, um, optimistic, very optimistic that, uh, this will be treatable and, uh, and that they're going to be able to knock this thing down. So, uh, if you can keep my brother Mark in your prayers, that would be appreciated. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be doing our light edition today. And you're going, well, that's a short week. Yeah, I understand that. However, it's uh, the, the, what's happening right now dictates that that's going to be our normal thing. And I want to continue with the lecture series that we've been going through with uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, my mentor, uh, on... Uh, luther's commentary on the book of galatians this is critical vital stuff that we understand because this is foundation uh proper distinction of law and gospel as as laid out in the in paul's epistle to the churches in galatia is a critical pivotal uh doctrine that really separates the men from the boys the true uh teachers of christ and christianity from the false teachers of christ and christianity over and over again you're going to find that uh that those who are engaging in false doctrine in false teaching um are are well where they've really biffed it fundamentally is in not properly distinguishing the proper use of God's law and the gospel so um and of course now those of you who have who did not support us during the month of December uh, who shortly we're going to be putting a link up uh, where you'll be able to purchase the Pirate Christian Radio edition of uh, CFW Walther's The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel. And uh, this is our edition that uh, we, we spent, you know, what, five months working on this thing. But, um, you know, I, those of you who uh, who supported us in the month of December, you should have already received your link to download it. Download it and start reading it. I guarantee you, you will not be able to read it in a day. It's 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 just that long. I think... If this were published in trade paper, I think we estimated that it would come out to be about 750 pages long. That, <laughs> that's a long book. Anyway, that's that, that was just our best guess that we can come up with. But anyway, so uh, without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and his continuing lecture series on Luther's commentary on Paul's, the Apostle Paul's, epistle to the churches in Galatia. Here we go.
1: Again, what we're doing together is relatively low-level and prosaic. We're looking at what I think, other than his small common, uh, small catechism, is Luther's greatest work. He disagreed. Uh, We're looking at the book of Galatians as a great book, and particularly Luther's commentary on it. Uh, to hit the high points I somebody asked before class about the full outlines they Will be finally available through new reformation press if you want them um, I'm assign, I've assigned my TA to do all the ones I missed that uh, that uh, insert pagination Where I did it kind of sloppily and that's perfect work for a TA to do index work like that so he's doing what I left out and then that will be available to you in full form. You're getting a sort of a shortened version, what those who use uh, uh, outlining software call hoisting. Uh heisting? Hoisting? Hoisting Hoisting. Anyway, you make things disappear. So on what you have, I've made details disappear, but that doesn't mean you can't get at the whole thing if you'd like. Um, it will be PDF format that is not... Uh, true ASCII G's, but pictures of G's, but the full text will be there if you want it, what I'm following here. All right, the goal is to get through one-third of chapter four this Sunday, the second third next Sunday, and the third third uh, two Sundays from now, and that finishes volume 26. As I've said before, if you want to do at another time uh Uh, chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, that'll take me another summer to work on. It will not happen during the academic year, but uh, you can let uh, others know the powers that be on that. All right, starting at 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no better than a slave, though he is the owner of all the estate, but he's under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. Uh, Luther says Paul has used all sorts of arguments thus far on experience, on the example of Abraham, on the scriptures, on chronology, uh, Sinai and Abraham, and analogy. And sometimes he repeats a case he's already concluded. Here he uses a political illustration, the young heir to the inheritance. Luther says with a divine cunning Uh, Paul lies in wait for the Galatians to catch them. Ordinary people, says Luther, are caught more easily by analogies and illustrations than by subtle discussions, difficult ones. Uh, We'd rather look at a well-drawn picture than a well-written book. But analogies and illustrations are used not just by Paul. The prophets used them. Christ himself used them. So, even in civil law, Although the heir is literally the owner, he's still a slave. The young one has the promise, the blessing of the inheritance. Nevertheless, before the time of emancipation, he's subjected to guardians and to trustees who force him to serve rather than rule. He lives and eats on his own property as though he were a servant. And says Luther, this is actually for his good. Otherwise, the uh, boy growing up would dissipate the inheritance foolishly. But it's not permanent. On some date set by the father, this will be over. Verse 3. And so with us. When we were children, we were slaves to the elements of this world. We were heirs, having the promise of the future inheritance through Abraham's offspring, that is, through the promised Christ, And when the time had not yet come, Moses was that guardian or manager or custodian. The law held us confined and captive, but the air was still nourished by hope. There's a way uh, Moses nourished them with hope in the promise of the coming Christ. So it was a time of law. But when Christ came, says Luther, this was finished. The time of grace was at hand says he, the time of law was finished in two ways. First, the obvious, Christ coming in the flesh. Christmas, a genuine incarnation. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 and Hebrews 9, 12. But second, says Luther, Christ comes to us in the spirit at least every day and every hour. He shed his blood once But since the remnants of sin cling to us still in our flesh, war wages within us. But he does not leave us orphaned, but comes to us every day, uh, abrogating for us the law or abolishing the law. He's talking about justification again. Even to the patriarchs he came in spirit in times prior to his historical coming. How do we know this? They looked forward and believed in the coming one. And they were saved through believing in that one who was to come. Now, of course, the correlative of this is nobody's saved through the law. Huh? Through one and the same Jesus Christ, all believers, past, present, and future, are delivered from the law, justified, and saved. Now, Paul, when we were children, we were slaves to the elements Of this world. The law was dominant over us, oppressed us with a harsh slavery. First, it was as a political restraint, he's doing this again. It threatens transgressors with punishment, the civil use. But second, the theological or pedagogical use of the law, it accuses, terrifies, kills, and condemns us. This is law, says Luther, is the chief dominion of the law over us. As an heir is whipped or forced to obey, so before Christ our consciences are oppressed by the harsh tyranny of the law, but it's not permanent. The law denounces sin, it even increases sin, but for the purposes of righteousness, it kills in order to make alive. It's our custodian. It dominates us, but not permanently. This is only until Christ comes the promised Christ came and redeemed us who were being oppressed by the tyranny of the law. He didn't come for the smug hypocrites or the openly wicked despisers. Um, uh, He's useless to these, even for the despairing who are going to cling to the law and try it, even though it doesn't work. Uh, He's going to be useless to these people. But He is supremely useful, Christ himself, to those who have been troubled and terrified by the law for a time. The emphasis is on we were slaves. Our consciences, subject to the law, it's tyranny, holding us confined in prison, making us, listen to this one, fearful, sad, pale, and desperate. Talk about getting down into the into the humanity of it. Luther says the law confined us and made us fearful, sad, pale, and desperate. It's very harsh, but not permanently. It, it lasts as long as we are children, that is, until Christ comes. And after Christ comes, the imprisonment or slavery of the law comes to an end. And again, he's already said, not the civil use, but with regard to the justification of sinners now what about this elements of this world Luther says Paul has a special way of speaking referring here to the law of God itself and his words sound violently heretical condescending to the law Paul elsewhere uses language like this the letter that kills the ministry of death and damnation the power of sin, all those things he says about the law. He deliberately, says Luther, uses these loathsome names which show the power and function of the law in order to frighten us away from the law in the matter of justification. The law, says Luther, commenting here, the law is unable to do anything but make the conscience guilty, increase sin, and threaten death and damnation he says this is what paul is getting at here it centers on justification (coughs) the elements of this world he refers to the restraining from evil the drive to good works in society but the law does not deliver from sin does not justify and does not lead to heaven I don't obtain eternal life for avoiding murder, adultery, and stealing. Outward virtues, an honest way of life, are not the kingdom of Christ or of heavenly righteousness. They're the righteousness of the flesh, the righteousness of the world. Uh, The self-righteous have these, the heathen have these. Um, But Luther says... (laughs) They should be called a deception and a hypocrisy rather than righteousness. Overall, the law cannot do anything but accuse and frighten and condemn and kill. Hmm? Where terror and a sense of sin, death, and the wrath of God are present, there's no righteousness, nothing heavenly, no God. These are of the world. The law does not produce anything life-giving, or saving, or heavenly, or divine. That's why Paul calls it, says Luther, elements of this world. And he does a little digression on ceremonial laws, especially external matters of food, drink, clothing, places, times, temples, festivals, washings, all of that. All of the world, prescribed by God in this present life, but not a means of justifying sinners. Paul rejects and condemns all righteousness of all law based on these outward ceremonies, he calls them, the elements of this world. The law of Moses produces nothing that goes beyond the things of the world. It shows the evils there are in the world. The terrors of the law drive consciences to thirst and yearn for the promise, to look or hope for Christ who will deliver. The Holy Spirit must say it's not the will of God that you merely be terrified and killed, but beyond that that you recognize your misery and your lost condition through the law. Then do not despair, but believe in Christ who was the end of the law, that everyone who has faith in him may be justified. Romans 10. Says Luther, there's nothing of the world here now he's not saying the law should be held in contempt, this is a repetition. Neither Paul and Luther are saying that here, it should be held in esteem in its proper place. But here the issue is justification, vastly different from a discussion of the law uh, in matters of this life. Uh, here the conscience, here meaning justification, the conscience should, should know nothing except Christ alone. In the matter of justification, we reject the law from view as far as possible, and we embrace nothing but the promise. Now, he says this, of course, is almost impossible when we're under attack, an accusation. In theory, yes, in practice, very difficult. We must say to the law, law, I shall not listen to you. The time has fully come. I am free. I'm no longer un- under your jurisdiction or dominion. And then to say why? Because Christ has fulfilled that for me and has made me his own, baptized me into it for free, and you have no jurisdiction here. If we're able to do that, it's a gift from heaven. If we're able to believe in hope against hope that Christ himself is enough and that we're justified simply by faith in him, Luther says that's a gift. You may not know it, but it is. That was given to you from heaven itself. So, says Luther, we should all learn to speak most contemptuously about the law in the matter of justification, as Paul did. Calls the law elements of the world, traditions that kill, the power of sin. Luther said we're completely free here to do that. If the law dominates in our consciences instead of Christ in his death, then under pressure the law will be of no help to us. It will only accuse us more, increase our sin and our sense of death. But apart from the matter of justification, we should speak reverently of the law, call it holy, righteous, good, spiritual, divine. But in our conscience, says Luther, the law is truly a devil. It cannot encourage your comfort. It does just the opposite. That's why he calls it weak and beggarly elements. The Christian must not permit the law to dominate his or her conscience since it cost Christ so much to remove it. To remove it from the conscience. This is why, says Luther, Christ became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3. The law and Christ here are mutually contradictory, altogether incompatible. If Christ is present with regard to our forgiveness in heaven, then the law must not rule but give way. The response to Paul's names for the law. Why does Paul attribute such odious, even blasphemous phrases to the law? It's a divine teaching given from heaven. Is it not? Luther. It's always what happens, and it's probably a good thing that we have to face that down. It's always going to be. Uh, Luther says, before Christ, it is holy. After Christ, it's death to us. When Christ comes, we must know nothing whatever about the law except to the extent that it has dominion over our earthly life and flesh and constrains in that way. Paul is the only apostle to use this kind of phraseology, says Luther, calling uh, the law what he calls it. But Paul was Christ's chosen instrument. Acts 9, he gave to Paul a unique phraseology different from that of the other apostles so that Paul could faithfully lay the foundation of the doctrine of justification and set it down clearly. Verses 4 and 5, but when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Notice how Paul defines Christ here, says Luther, son of God and of the woman. He includes both the person and the work of Christ. The person, a divine and human nature, true God, true man, the work, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. This bothered some of the ancients who thought it seemed to insult the virgin by calling her simply woman. Luther doesn't digress too far on that, but he mentions it. Paul is dealing with the most sublime subject matter, the gospel, faith, Christian righteousness, the definition of the the person of Christ, the meaning of his work, the reason why uh, Paul didn't consider the matter of her virginity as the magnitude of his subject here. It was enough for him to proclaim the mercy of God and that God saw fit to have his son born of the female sex. It indicates he was a true man by birth from a real woman, uh, not from male and female. And it's the same, says Luther, as though Paul were saying, born of a virgin, The important aspect here is when the time of the law was over, Christ did not come to establish a new law for us. This, says Luther, is a very wicked error. Guess with whom it has to do? The monks, the sophists, scholastic theology, and they'll even say it. Uh, Christ came as teacher and as new lawgiver, a new Moses. to portray Christ as just a new lawgiver does him supreme injury, says Luther, he did not come to abrogate the law with the purpose of establishing a new one. He came rather to redeem those who were held captive under the law. This one, hold to. Huh? Um, we by nature will, once the law gets uh, uh, sort of put in its place in our mind, try and go find new laws to replace uh what seems to have been put down in a proper place. It's our inclination. So says Luther, it's as if Christ were saying, I perform a more sublime, a sublime and better function. I judge and condemn the law for you. I'll take it and all of what it entails into my flesh, into my body, and you're not going to have to. Hmm? The law kills you, I in turn kill it. Through death, I'll abolish death. We adults, says Luther, have been imbued from our earliest years with with this noxious doctrine of the papists. Uh, Christ is the new lawgiver. We've absorbed it into our very bones, acquired an opinion concerning Christ very different from what Paul says here. We learned as children that Christ was a lawgiver, a new tyrant. And says, Luther, we can never seem to completely banish this wicked opinion from our minds. You young, he addresses him, you young were never so infected. You're relatively unspoiled by this. But you'll still have to contend with it because it's in you, in your flesh, in your reason, in the wickedness of our natures. And to make matters worse, we had wicked teachers that lent support to our wicked natures. It's almost impossible not to develop a false view of Christ as new lawgiver. Reason invents him, then bad instructors make him grow. Strongly impress that on our minds. Cannot be gotten rid of without great labor and effort. So, it's very important to keep Paul's statement here in mind, to define Christ properly. That is, Then we can declare with confidence to the law, Law, you have no jurisdiction over me, and I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom the Father sent into the world to redeem us, miserable sinners. And, O law, I immerse my conscience in the wounds, the blood, the death, and the resurrection and the victory of Christ. Beyond him, I don't want to hear anything from you at all. That's what he's saying. We should address the law in this matter with regard to justification. Christ is in place as the Savior, the propitiator, the Redeemer. And at that point, the law is to be told to bug off. He encourages us to do this. This, says Luther, is our victory, 1 John 5, though not without great struggle. The vexed really sweat over this. Often get the idea that Christ wants to rebuke us that he intends to demand of us an account of how we spent our lives, and he intends to accuse and condemn us. You'd be amazed how many people, Christian believers, are frightened to death of the second coming because they haven't got their act together. There's not going to be any condemnation. None. The accuser will be silenced. It's already a done deal. You're included in Christ by believing simple faith in him, as the one who substituted for you, no accusation. There's no reason to fear it. That's Rosenblatt, not Luther. <laughs> we, it's very difficult for us to be sure that Christ was sent by the Father to redeem us. And the reason for this is none of us has yet shed the flesh completely. The terrors of law, fear of death, and other sad specters keep coming back to hinder our faith in Christ. In what manner has Christ redeemed us? Well, born under the law, came and found us all captive under guardians and trustees, confined, constrained, and what did he do? He himself was Lord of the law. It had no jurisdiction over him. It could not accuse him. But he who was not under law, 1 Peter 2, subjected himself voluntarily to the law and let it do everything to him. ...that it does to us, and even more fiercely raged against him. It accused him of blasphemy, of sedition, found him guilty of all the sins of the entire world, so saddened and frightened him that he sweat blood in the garden, sentenced him to death, even death on a cross. A truly remarkable duel, says Luther. The law, which is a creature, comes into conflict with the Creator. It exceeds its jurisdiction vexed the Son of God as it vexes us, and because the law had sinned so horribly and wickedly against its God, it is summoned to court and accused. Christ rebukes lady law. The law has nothing with which to defend itself or cleanse itself. It itself is condemned by the Lord Christ and killed, so that it loses its jurisdiction not only over him, whom it attacked and killed without the right to do it, but also all who believe in him. All right, we are going to pause right there, pay some bills,
0: and uh, we will be right back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackfightingforthefaith.com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash PirateChristian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, PirateChristian. We will be right back. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel...
1: You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God.
0: Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally...
1: We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor, you need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable.
0: And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and... Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon.
1: I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed.
0: He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back. Warning! Only the gospel can provide you with certainty regarding your salvation. The law, it can only produce doubt. need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there... You will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. Okay, here's the balance of this uh, lecture on uh, Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to the churches in Galatia. Here we
1: go. So what Christ says to all who believe in him is, I could have overcome the law without injury by simple authority, but for your sakes, I assumed your flesh, subjected myself to the law, let the law lord it over me, and I've conquered the law by a double claim. First, as the Son of God and Lord of the law, and second, in your person or for you, which is tantamount to you having conquered the law yourselves. Luther. Paul speaks about this remarkable duel throughout his writings, usually used using personification, and he lists some of the uh, passages. Christ has driven the law to flight out of our conscience, When the conscience takes hold of this, then sort of with a holy pride, um, we we with a sort of holy pride insult the law. Uh, It's also serving once again to say we are justified before God by simple faith in Christ sola, or alone, or without law. The duel between the law and Christ was going on, no works or merits of ours intervened. Christ, having put on our person, served the law, suffered its tyranny. The law was guilty of the murder of the Son of God. It lost its rights. It deserves to be damned. So wherever Christ is present, the law is forced to yield, to flee. Would that we could believe this all the time. I hope you're able to believe it more than I'm able to believe it. All believers, free from the law through Christ who triumphed over it. And this is grasped not by any works, but by simple faith in Christ. The words Christ was born under the law should be understood in this way. Christ suffered all the tyranny of the law. It exercised its full function over him. It frightened him horribly, gave him greater anguish than it does over us. Bloody sweat, the need for the comfort of the angel, Gethsemane, his solemn prayer in the garden, and finally on the cross, his cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He endured all these things to redeem us who were under the law. We still sin against the commandments of God every day, but Paul commends us to have hope. God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under law or under the law. Christ, the divine and human person, came not to institute laws, but to bear them and to fulfill them, and to abolish them. By his obedience, he might redeem us who are under the law. This is completely different from the teaching of the papists who made of Christ a severer lawgiver than Moses. Luther's a product of his time, uh, and he's going to do this whenever he gets a chance to do it, to do the contrast. Paul here teaches the opposite. When Christ gives commandments, these belong not to the doctrine of justification, but to good works. And later on he's going to say, don't let that seep over into what we're talking about here. It'll kill you. Everything is lost then. The teaching of the law is not the proper function of Christ. It's what, this is Aristotle, it's an accidental function, or a a not central one. He did teach the law. And it, it was divine of him to do that, as were healing, the, as was healing the sick, raising the dead, helping the poor, comforting the afflicted. All those are glorious and divine works, but they're not peculiar to Christ. The prophets taught the law. They perform miracles. They're special benefits, but they're not the chief reason for his coming. Christ, the true God, the true man, suffered the full fierceness and tyranny of the law and conquered it for us in himself, rose from the dead, condemned the law, abolished it so that it can no longer condemn us and no longer kill us. That's his proper function as Savior. This is the central one, to struggle with the law, with sin, with death, and to conquer them by undergoing them, to abolish them, to liberate us from the law and every evil. And since Christ says Luther has conquered the law. It follows that he is God by nature. No man or angel above the law, but Christ is above the law because he he conquered it and strangled it. Luther, if you grasp Christ as as he's described by Paul here, you won't go wrong and you'll never be put to shame. All the stuff about I've done so well has to die and be replaced by Christ who died for us. The other has to go, right? That's not easy. You mean all the, think of the Jews, all the struggle we've done and the Gentiles are going to get in for free? What kind of a deal is that? That's a little later on, but yeah, there's an unfairness to this. Um, So if the true picture of Christ as the propitiator, the liberator, the savior of sinners is lost, if that's removed, There's sure confusion, says Luther, of everything. Um, This cannot be judged by the unspiritual man, nor the philosophers, nor the jurists. (laughs) Only the Christian judges the law. How? To say it does not justify. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Divine sonship, Paul means, says Luther. Luther. Earlier, Paul had used many other words, phrases, to describe what we receive from the offspring, from Christ. Righteousness, life, the promise of the Spirit, redemption from the law, and the covenant. Here, Paul names sonship, the inheritance, eternal life. Once the offspring has removed the curse from us, sin and death, its place is taken instead by blessing. Righteousness, life, everything good. All yours, all mine, for free. By what merit have we received these things? None. By none, says Luther. What could be merited by men confined under sin, subjected to the curse of the law, and condemned to eternal death? We've received all this freely without deserving it. If you want to think of it this way, the only way merit is involved is Christ's merit, not ours. Huh? He was born under the law for us, made a curse for us, redeemed us who are under the law. Therefore, we receive this sonship solely by the redemption of Christ Jesus. Huh? Uh, we want to get our merit in there, and that's deadly. It's got to die. Um, that's Rosenblatt, not, but it's the sense here. Uh, leave merit out of this. We've also received the Holy Spirit, and He's going to say a little bit about this. Verse six, because your sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. This says Luther is in in two ways. In the early church, it was in manifest and visible forms, Uh, Book of Acts, or uh, uh, what happened at Pentecost in Acts two. Uh, Christ, the form of a dove; the apostles, the form of fire. This was necessary, said Luther, for the primitive church. Uh, Those visible signs were on account of unbelievers. Uh, Second, in our day, sending the word, uh, through the word, uh, sending the spirit into the hearts of believers without visible form. The recipients are made new uh, and different as a gift of the spirit who comes with the preached word. Um, He produces new um, things in our hearts by faith alone produces new drives in us. So says Luther, this means we're able on the basis of the word to judge things with certainty. The papists and the Anabaptists are unable to be certain about anything, he says. Uh, now it isn't evident that we've been renewed in minds and have the Holy Spirit. Uh, pagans can look just as we look. Um, But without the Word, it's impossible to form any sure judgments. This shouldn't affect us. If the world judges us dangerous and heretics, it will. Uh, We must be satisfied with the testimony of our conscience and what the Word promises as a divine gift that we believe in Jesus Christ and declare him. Still, we must discipline ourselves in piety, avoid sin as much as we can, and we do sin and we must know that we can fall all this remains in our flesh but externally there's not much difference between the Christian and another socially upright human being that's not how you're to judge it they think the works of Christians are cheap um just as the Christian does his vocation that this is nothing the unspiritual man thinks of these as nothing doesn't praise them he's yet impressed by the superstitions of the hypocrites and people who do self-chosen works, that impresses him, and he supports them with money. He denounces and condemns believers' joyful obedience as wickedness even, unrighteousness, not an evidence of the Spirit. And in times of tribulation, un- being under the cross, it be- becomes evident that by the Holy Spirit we confess the faith or confess Christ. The world is not going to recognize it. Um, This is why, says Luther, we must not doubt the Spirit dwells in us. It has to do with um, Christ is the propitiator. Christ is the liberator. Christ is the one who took my sin. Christ is the one who died for my sin, lived the life that I must live. That's how I know, because people without the Holy Spirit don't confess that. And all you're doing is repeating Scripture back to him. Hmm? When we say that, we're just repeating Scripture back to him. You took my place you died for me, you promised me for free this, you promised that. It's not new, it's just saying the scriptures back to him. It's like the liturgy where the scripture is read to us and we respond back with the scripture. Saying this to refute the dangerous doctrine of the sophists and monks, I'm saying this to refute the dangerous doctrine of the sophists and monks, that no one can know for certain that he's in a state of grace. Now that's technical terminology, but it's alive and well in your Roman Catholic friends who've been taught well. You cannot be certain ever that you're in a state of grace. Uh, says Luther, this is pro- uh, pro- practically an article of faith throughout the papacy. It has utterly ruined the doctrine of faith, it has disturbed consciences, it's abolished Christ from the church. Anyone who has such doubts about the will of God toward him, does not believe for a certainty that he's in a state of grace, cannot believe that he has the forgiveness of sins, that God cares about him, or that he can be saved. Says the papist, far be it from me that I should believe for a certainty I'm in a state of grace, or that I'm holy, or that I have the Holy Spirit. In Roman Catholic doctrine, not even the Pope can say that without direct revelation. So Luther's again going against the whole thing. Um, this is a wicked idea on which the entire kingdom of the Pope rests. It's one that youth should flee as the plague. We older grew up with it from childhood, we had to fight to find our way to Christ in true faith. We must believe for a certainty we're in a state of grace and pleasing to God for the sake of Christ. What's at issue here is not what's going on in our innards. That'll always be mixed wickedness. But we must be certain that Christ told the truth, and that it applies especially to his having redeemed us. Luther said, what is it to be in a state of grace than that, other than that? Christ is who he claimed to be, and he did what he claimed to do. I have no merit in that whatever. It's simply to say, he is what he's, who he said he was, and he did what he said he did, and then start ticking off all the benefits that are freely ours. So it's back door or side door way. Uh, I tell my students, if you have a Roman Catholic roommate and you talk about the assurance of salvation, they'll think you're making a moral claim. They were taught that. You're not making a moral claim. In fact, just the opposite. That you're an immoral, freely redeemed by Christ. But that isn't their language. Luther pops his cork at this just pops his cork if you're a person in a position of authority you have to believe too that your office is pleasing to God um, and even your person here here you need the help of theology the basis for your knowing that is you've been baptized into Christ you believe in Christ and his, and his work on your behalf you attend a church that preaches that doctrine from the word um, and you take pleasure in its propagation Uh, sleep well, sleep well. In addition, uh, says uh, Paul, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, a sort of internal testimony. Um, This should also lead us to believe that we're in a state of grace on on account of him who is certain. Contrast the Pope with his doctrine that disturbs consciences and brings them to the brink of despair. He doesn't just teach them to be the faithful to be in doubt he commands it and we see here how great the weakness of faith is even in the pious we experience opposite feelings fear doubt sorrow and we do not dare to believe this for a certainty our conscience becomes convinced that such certainty is a presumption on our part to say that we're in grace it's about Christ we're just simply recipients. It's not about us. It's about Christ and who he is and what he did. Become accustomed, therefore, to believing for a certain you are in a state of grace, that your person and your calling are pleasing to God. Believing and confessing the person and work of Christ for you is evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence. Huh? Not just your person, but your calling. This doesn't come by human powers or efforts. Um but is a gift from heaven, from Christ himself. And we should strive, says Luther, daily to more and more move from uncertainty to certainty. Now it isn't here in this text, but in many other texts, Luther thought that doubt and uncertainty was hell on earth. And that part of what happens when we're turned from looking in on ourselves to looking outward to Christ dying and bleeding for us is we're lifted out of that horrible state of doubt and uncertainty and worry and fretting and despair. Uh, this is pure gospel here. Look to him and forget looking inside. This is not We're not doing morals here, we're doing theology. Christ has died for sinners. So become accustomed to fighting this fight. And if you're able to believe that Christ died for you and it's enough for you, thank God because it came from heaven itself. You didn't produce it. Uh, Paul talks about crying uh, on the part of those who are under trial, those of us who are weak and believe weakly. The great comfort here that Paul gives us in Romans 8, the Spirit is interceding for us all the time with sighs too deep for words. Many things hinder us. Our hearts are born in sin, the innate evil that dwells in us, uh, the devil himself, we have it appears nothing to strengthen and sustain us. Uh, everything is set against us and we're in, we utter unbearable cries. Uh, and this requires labor to cling to Christ in the midst of these trials. It, he isn't visible to our senses. It starts in our imagination to appear that he is wrathful to us or has deserted us. Then added to that, we feel the power of our sin, the weakness of our flesh, the strength of our doubt, the fiery darts of the devil, the terrors of death, the judgment of God. Nothing seems left for us but despair and eternal death. Then Paul says, the spirit begins to cry in our hearts, Abba, Father. That spirit's cry on our behalf breaks through the horrible cries of the law. It penetrates the clouds to heaven itself and reaches all the way to the ears of God. Paul wants to indicate here the weakness there still in is in all of us. The opposite is so strong in us. Acutely, we are more aware of the wrath of God toward us than his favor. The Spirit sent into our hearts cries, Abba, Father, and intercedes forth. For us with sighs too deep for words. How? Luther describes it. In terrors of conscience, we take hold of Christ. The law, our sin, the devil attack. There's nothing to keep us bruised reeds and smoldering wicks from succumbing to despair. But, meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness, interceding for us with sighs. Our mind is strengthened. We sigh to our high priest and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father. And in that sighing, of which we're almost not aware, Paul calls it a cry and a sigh too deep for a sigh that fills heaven and earth, says Luther. The more our enemies press in on us, the more we do we sighing, cling to Christ. To this, uh, this sighing seems to us very weak, almost nothing. Not that it would penetrate the clouds, But to God, it's a loud cry, stronger than the roars of the law, sin, death, the devil, and hell. It appears to us in our hearts that the devil is roaring at us. Heaven is bellowing at us. Earth is shaking underneath us. That everything's about to collapse, and hell is opening up to swallow us. The power of Christ, said Paul, is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. Christ, truly almighty, truly reigns and triumphs when we are all weak. Likewise in our day, says Luther, how it goes for us. Uh, we can't do anything but sigh to heaven. But these have been our cannons, our instruments of war. He illustrates with Moses and the Red Sea. Uh, you can do that on your own. So, says Luther, I've discussed this at some length in order to show what the work of the Holy Spirit is and how he usually carries it out. Contrast this with today's American evangelicalism, what the Holy Spirit is and how he does this work. Um, just contrast. In times of temptation, we must not, not decide anything on the basis of our feelings or on the basis of the law or sin or death or the devil. Our feelings will tell us we're bereft of all help. We've been banished from the presence of God. Rather, remember Paul here. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Cries, Abba, Father. And the Father responds, I hear nothing in the world but that little sigh. It's a loud cry in my ears. It fills heaven and earth. Paul could have written that the Spirit intercedes in such times with prayer for us, but he doesn't write that. The Spirit merely utters the words of a cry and a sigh, which is, Oh, Father! It's a very short word, says Luther. It includes everything. So what we must say in this kind of situation, surrounded by enemies, seemingly deserted and banished, nevertheless, Luther's Danach, nevertheless, I am a child of God on account of Christ and his work for me. I'm beloved in the beloved. And this, Luther says, the heart sighing, just Abba, is more eloquent than the writings of Demos- Demosthenes, Cicero, and all of the most eloquent men there have ever been in the world. And it's not expressed in words, but just a simple sigh. Christians must believe, therefore, for a certainty that they're in a state of grace. The cry of the Holy Spirit comes out of the heart, Help! Father! So we utterly repudiate the wicked idea of the Pope that a man must be uncertain uh, with regard to being in grace. If the Pope's opinion stands here, Christ is completely useless. A man must doubt the promises of God, the will of God, the birth, suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. This is blasphemous. The wickedness of the monks, recruiting young men to holy orders as a sure way of salvation, then once enlisted, commanding them to doubt the grace of God. Uh, Luther called this pure wickedness, and he had gone through it. <clears throat> this is a torture chamber of consciences, the very kingdom of the devil, says Luther. Uh, then there's a long discussion of Ecclesiastes nine one. It's the proof text used by the papists. Um, I think I'm going to stop with that and begin next time with that one—that the false use of a verse, Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes nine one. Let's begin there next time. So we've got a a little bit of time for questions. Let's say in the lesson uh, we say that on page two. when the time of the law is over, and Christ is on us, and saved by grace, mm-hmm. we also say we're sinners. And sinners are measured by what? Well, that the law is legit. Oh, it's still there. Yeah, and, and it's been conquered, mm-hmm. but if you want to talk about, am I still a sinner? The law, you read the commandments, mm-hmm. read the commandments, just know that there's nothing saving in it. That is, the law by itself tells you what to do and gives you no power whatever to obey it. None. It just commands. Yeah. And its purpose, if Luther's right here and he thinks he's right along with Paul, the main purpose of the law is to again convince us that we got nothing going for us and to drive us to one who had everything going for him for us. Not the civil use, though that's real. This is the one... Um that, that Luther considered the major use of the law to level human pride. To if if we think God's gonna grade on the cur the final on the curve to tell us otherwise. Um this is the kingpin battle. Uh we're we're in the center of the Reformation faith here in Galatians. Huh? Yes. Um, I'm referring to the quote you have or reference to Augustine saying, anyone can certainly see his own faith if he has it. Luther is going to use that up against because the papists said they so loved Augustine. And the way he's going to turn it is not to turn you internally to see if you can feel it. Just the opposite with Luther. He's going to turn you Outwards to Christ, who promises. Um, there are a lot of things they loved Augustine for and that they should have that were soundly biblical. Not all. Not all. I think it's easy to dismiss or move away from or get confused about what
0: where the law is applicable now, right? And so Lutheran confessions clearly speak to three uses of the law. Yes. And so help, help me or help us understand where is the law applicable now on this side of grace, right? We're saved. We're justified. It points to our sin. I think I was thinking of your response to yes, art. But yes. in terms of our, our daily
1: life or, or what have you. There it has its place. It just must not go beyond its jurisdiction. The law has the right. Lutherans were not... Uh, Uh, Anabaptists in this, they believe that law courts, juries, lawyers, judges, jails, and depending upon your view, gallows, (coughs) all of it was legit in the civil sphere. But it won't justify you. You can be mayor of the town, the one that everybody admires, uh, and genuinely generous, this, that, and the other thing. Fine, wonderful. Recognize it's a gift from heaven, not self-produced. And then take the theological use of the law to drive you to Christ. Because being a wonderful mayor ain't going to save you. It's God-pleasing. Won't save you. In matters of justification, the law is primarily to drive us away from our idea of our own virtues and wonderfulness. It's got to die. Yeah, Don's comment, that made me think of uh, during Luther's time, some of his contemporaries were... Uh, antinomian. I wasn't really sure what that meant until I kind of did some reading on it. And Agricola, one of his contemporaries, Agricola, yeah, didn't uh, did had no use for the law at all. In fact, yep. Luther taught law and gospel. He taught only gospel, <clears throat> right? <laughs> Luther was not an antinomian. Um, I'll tell a kind of a private one here, but I think it's okay. I think I'm not talking out of school. The famous professor, Doctor Nagel, at the Saint Louis Seminary when he was called upon to interview some young prof, asked the question of him, if you were guilty of one of the heresies, which one would you most uh, like to be guilty of? The answer he was looking for was antinomian. Why? Not that Luther was an antinomian. He has books directed against it. But the one who's preaching grace and the sufficiency of Christ and the great substitution... And the resurrection for our justification is going to sound like to most people, what? An antinomian. An antinomian. Why, that fellow has no respect for the law at all. And that's true, but Luther over and over again says, in this subject, that is justification of the sinner. And he has complete sections on the civil use of the law. The three uses are found in the formula of Concord. Um, Luther speaks of the two here. It, I think that it, theologians argue, Lutheran theologians argue about this till the cows come home. And I think if the question is, does Luther hold to a third use of the law? I think it's a relatively simple matter, even if you didn't call it that. The commandments in the catechism. Huh? We should fear and love God so that we... If that isn't it, what is it? Huh? So, but as you might have heard in my address, the gospel for those broken by the church, if that's executed badly, it takes the the smoldering wicks and it goes, and puts them out. And it takes the reeds hanging by one filament and breaks them off. Bad preaching of the law, <clears throat> in the sense that Christ is not greater for the individual sinner. That's got to be done really carefully. I tell the young students at college, if you're going to do the law in that kind of way, put it in the middle of the sermon so that you're ending with Christ and his priestly work. I don't know if they'll remember that, but I give it a shot. Don't end with it. Don't end with it. Well, you said something at the beginning of the session that said, when that Luther said, when you try to take the law and justify yourself, you're kind of taking away from Christ. Sure. And then it brought to mind the reading today. I had to read um, Peter, Second Peter. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And I think maybe people look at that and say, I've got to follow the law. Well, there's a way in which. Uh, The old flesh needs to hear that and needs to make the vow to follow the law only to know it's going to be broken by Tuesday or this afternoon or whenever. And Christ is greater. Go back to the fight. Christ is greater than your failure. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. I mean, if any time during the year we should see that, this is that time. Be of good cheer. Christ is greater than your failure. Go back to the fight, but know that he's greater. Hmm? You're in, not out.
0: I'm sure there's no time to fully answer this question, but uh, what the last couple comments about uh, the use of the law, is there a way you can bring that up to date in like two minutes with the whole law gospel reductionism
1: and where Elka oh. went? I mean, that's that completely applies, right? <laughs> uh-huh. A person... A- pastor can affirm the theology of the Book of Concord, including a genuine third use of the law, and he should if he says he signs the confessions. But when a Lutheran pastor is doing that, it should be as the foil for getting to Christ and his death, his cross and his death for us. Um, if we're doing what the Baptist does, where the fundamental deepest level of Christianity has to do with improvement of morals, we ought not even exist. We ought not even exist. We have no right to exist. But when it's done in the Book of Concord, it's done carefully, surgically, and so forth. That is, the old Adam remaining in us still needs to hear the law. We're not in glory, and uh, there is such a use of the law that it instructs us. Otherwise, Paul's letters would have been half the length they really are and would have ended with, now go love everybody. Oh, great. There's a way in which it's didactic. It fleshes out, in particular, for fathers, for mothers, for slaves, for masters, for this, for that, and so forth. It's didactic. It's still law. But the person who says, these things are what are driving me to hell, needs to hear Christ is greater than these these things. And it takes a good preacher to know it. Luther thought one who had been tested by despair, He thought one of the things that made for a good theologian was that sort of awful experience of the Anfechtungen such that, uh, they were able to hear and to preach what's saving in the face of it for others and to replace that with Christ and do it in detail from your text this morning. How? How is he greater? That's an art. Oh, yes. In a certain sense, his whole life long. Are you leading all these people astray? Yeah, the the devil attacked him in a particular way. Um, So he was preaching to himself that Christ is greater than my disobedience. All of it. Even Christian disobedience. Hmm? This is why... This is why... This really is good news. We still are what we are. huh? And Christ is greater than the part on the negative side for us. And it'll all be clear at the end. Right now we're in the middle of the muddle. But he still is greater than our failure to Christian life. He's greater. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. All right. Enough for the day. Thanks for your attention.
0: Fantastic lecture, and and we never get past the basics in Christianity. Uh, Yeah, it's yeah. Remember, is it was it Vince Lombardi who said, you know, gentlemen, this is a football. You you know, you know, kind of to illustrate the fact that you know even football players, it's all about mastery of the basics. Same with Christianity, and uh, the proper distinction of law and gospel is at the very heart and center of Christianity. You mess up that distinction. And you literally jeopardize your salvation and the salvation of those you're teaching. Why? Because the law cannot, does not, and will not save you unless you keep it perfectly. And since you don't, and you haven't, and I don't, and I haven't, we need a different way of being saved. And that message comes to us from outside of ourselves. It's completely counterintuitive. And it's the good news that Jesus Christ bled and died in your place, taking down, drinking down to the dregs the very wrath of God for your sins and mine. And so God's wrath has been propitiated. It has been satisfied. His justice has been satisfied. And so now it is God's good pleasure to reckon sinners as righteous on account of Jesus Christ. That's good news and it assures us and gives us sure and certain certainty that we have a loving, gracious, and merciful God who desires our best, our salvation, and has adopted us as sons and daughters, and we will spend eternity with Him in His kingdom. Amen. Good stuff. All right, well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And, you know, I like to remind everybody that it's listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us financially, we truly do need your help to keep doing what we're doing as we move on into the year 2012. Obviously, it's, like, you know, going to be the end of the world soon. But uh, we've got to still keep the lights on all the way through December 21st. So just want (laughs) to... Remind you of that. So visit our website and uh, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons there to support us, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address talk talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian.